battery pack in an electric vehicle consists of several hundreds, even several thousands of single battery cells. But even if these are single battery cells, in the end, they are treated like one big cell in the system. We are breaking with the system and saying, hey, if you have so many single battery cells within your system, why treating them all the same? Welcome to Startup Knockout. I'm your host, Timo Higgs. Today on Startup Knockout, we've got Niklas Lehnert, CEO and co-founder of Bewertes. Bewertes is disrupting the electric vehicle battery market, massively extending vehicle range and battery lifetime. And Niklas is going to tell us all about how they're doing it today. Niklas, thanks for coming on Startup Knockout. Hi, thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you. And we're going to jump right in to the personal stuff. Can you give us the story of how you and Manuel decided to go in on a startup together? Yeah, sure. Like basically after high school, our ways kind of split up because he moved on with the technical stuff and I decided to go into the management stuff. The vice president of the university, he was doing the PhD, um, was giving him the hint that um, he's doing some really cool stuff on the technical side. And if he would not be interested, um, maybe to apply for a public grant that in the best case would end up in a startup. And um, that was the first match. And we were going deeper into the topic and talking about it and what we need to do. And that was basically the, the beginning of Pervertis. And how long was it just the two of you? How long did you wait until you went and found more co-founders? Basically, during the application uh, for this public grant uh, we got, it was only the two of us. But even during this uh, first stage, we figured out quite fast that um, there are two blind spots uh, in the game. And that was a specialist for hardware development and a specialist for software development. And so we were pretty sure that we would need those two competences in the core team. So we started already during the application process um, looking for people who would fit into the team and um, could fill these blind spots. And yeah, during this first year of where we didn't really start with the project, um, but still had time to to complete the team, uh, we found in the end uh, Lukas Opkirer and Michel Hohenegger. Lukas is taking care of the hardware development. He was the former head of hardware at uh, Kinexon, also a German um, tech startup. And on the software side, we have Michi, um, who is a former Ruder and Schwarz employee, and he already had a rough idea about the system we were working on. And he is uh, specialized in embedded software development, which is a very specialized part of software development. But in the end, they got recommended by other friends. So um, there was was an easy connect and um, a good fit for the team. And how did you bring them in? So what were you... Was it was it difficult to convince them to come into this? I imagine they had promising careers in front of them, as you did. I've seen your bio. Uh, was that tough, or were they in right away? Um, let's say with Lucas, it was uh, kind of easy. Uh, he was already like growing with Kinexon, and he was always interested in the startup ecosystem, and that that was in the end the reason why he why he even joined Kinexon. Um, and he was always looking for the opportunity to not only be an employee of a startup, but in the best case also found um, a startup himself. So um, he was excited from the very first moment. 
with Michi, it was pretty much the same story. Um, he was not really looking into the star aperture system or specifically um, watching for a position in the startup. But um, he's a software developer. He was looking for like challenges and really building a new environment and having the chance to, to work freely on what he's doing. And that's actually exactly what we can offer with our technology because it's super new. There is not much existing yet. And um, he has like the whole field of, of freedom and creativity um, in front of him. And that was in the end what, what uh, convinced him to join the founders team. Now, this stems from Manuel's PhD work. Is that correct? That's correct. So Germany has often been stereotyped, typified, if you like, as having amazing research, but they're not so fantastic at taking those research and bringing them to market and making them a viable business. Why were you able to make this jump where some others might not be able to? We do not really have this input problem. So we have great education. We have super smart people. They're doing great research and um, there's lots of innovation ongoing. And um, the problem is that there is not much output coming from this um, in a startup and a economic perspective. And the point why we made the step finally was on the one side, a, a little push from the vice president um, of the University of um, Forest Arms in Munich. Um, who was talking to Manuel and giving the hint of if he would not like to start a startup. Um, that was the one point. But um, the second uh, important point is that there is um, this public grant existing called Exist Forschungstransfer that gives you really, really a great opportunity to take scientific research and kind of try it out during the public grant time and then make a really decent decision if you really want to take it into the industry. And this access forschungs transfer was basically the, the last point which convinced us to, to start the journey and um, to set up the project and in the end also found the company. The exist research transfer, the money you got from it, this was meant to be money for a proof of concept. Was it, was it enough? Was it substantial enough that you felt you wouldn't have any trouble getting to a proof of concept? So when we were working on it, we figured out that it's possible in the time to build a POC during the, the ground time. And we were even like over fulfilling our goals um, so that we were a bit faster than our planned timeline and had a working prototype at the beginning of last year, which was like a super nice success and we were super happy with it. Um, and that needed in the end to the point that we... Um, applied for some additional funds um, at this access Forschungstransfer and were able to, to prolong uh, the runtime um, for our side. Do you think this whole thing would have happened if Manuel had not get that, got that push from the vice president? Oh, that's hard to say. Um, I would say prob probably no, because um, even like there is tons of public grants available, like on a European base, a national base. But if you're not really into the topic and proactively looking for such grants and funds, it's almost impossible to, to find them and especially find a match of what you want to do and what they can provide you. 
So without the push and the information you got from um, the West President Rafael Lacroix, um, I would say probably we would work in a corporate at the moment. This is one of those things I see as necessary for Germany in moving forward is making these things less dependent upon you've just got that good person in your life who's given you yeah. that nudge forward and making it more institutionalized so that when there's good research, the resources come and find them rather than them having to go and find the resources. Absolutely. I would absolutely agree on this. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the resources you've tapped into. So I'm seeing a lot, actually, of these sorts of programs. So there was the EXIST one, the EIT Urban Mobility, the Global Entrepreneurship Center, Expreneurs. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with these, how they helped to move you forward. Um, in, in the first days, they helped us a lot with basically external input. So they were looking at our pitches, they were giving feedback on how to do better or on which points you should improve. And also like hand over proper information on how to build a business model, how to write a business plan and give all the information you kind of know that you need to have these documents and that you need to work on these points. Um, but as soon as you start working on them on your side, it doesn't take much time until you get in a kind of funnel and into your own world. And then it's super important to get like external views and external feedback on how to improve it because that helps you a lot to make it understandable for other people. And that's in the end, the most important point that also other people understand what you're doing, what you're aiming for, um, and what your goals are in the end. So that was like the first step we, we made from the perspective of, um, supporting programs. And then, um, the deeper you go into the process and the further you move, um, there is for different stages, there are different programs available. And, um, the last one we attended was the Experners program. It's a part of the Unternehmertum, um, ecosystem, let's say, and it helps startups that are either during or in the funding process or shortly before to further improve what they're doing and to in the end get them investors ready and also provides you with a huge network not only in the Munich startup ecosystem but also beyond this like on a national and um, even partially on a European base. Is there anything that you found that these accelerator programs were not doing enough of that you think the German startup community or these programs in particular needs to do more of for Germany's community to compete globally? The programs itself are great. They have a great setup. They are very structured. They provide you basically with the information you need. What I would say is lacking a lot in the German system that especially the mindset of entrepreneurship. So me as a management student, when we were learning stuff, like the baseline was always an existing company that was running quite well. And then you made your calculations and working for your strategy and working for your marketing, but you never start on scratch. From my perspective, the mindset of startups and being self-employed and building your own company is something that is almost totally missing 
during the whole university education. This as a only point is not enough because on the other side, of course, you need a, a good product, an outstanding product and a product that is technically better or is providing, providing better their input than previous products. And that's why there must always be a connection between tech and management. And creating this connection as early as possible provides the opportunity that already the students know in the first place that it's not only the corporates who provide you with jobs, but that there is also the possibility to be self-employed and build your own company. And that's the major point. So in the end, when you're finishing your studies, at least you have an idea how to build a company and with whom you should build the company. In a lot of large MBA programs that are aimed at internationals, so we're talking Harvard Business, even the the one at the University of Toronto where I'm from, they all have modules on entrepreneurship. I know that there is a module on entrepreneurship at the Munich Business School, but that's a private MBA program. I've not yet heard of entrepreneurship modules in MBA programs at the large public universities here in Germany. And if anybody out there is listening and knows of one, I really love to get that information. Let's talk about your tech. What your tech is meant to do is drastically increase battery range and battery life. Tell us first, though, what do you see as the problem with normal electric vehicle batteries? A battery pack in an electric vehicle consists of several hundreds, even several thousands of single battery cells. But even if these are single battery cells, in the end, they are treated like one big cell in the system. To, to make the vehicle work is on one side, you, you need a charger. But on the other side, to, to make use of the electricity within the battery pack and um, power your motor, there is an inverter needed to, to translate basically the DC signal, which is coming from, from the battery, into an AC signal to make it usable for, for the motor. As a third necessary device, you have a battery management system that overwatches in the end the battery and is measuring the, the current and the voltage and temperature. And in the end, it's responsible for showing you how full or empty the battery is and especially is responsible for avoiding unwanted conditions like the worst case scenarios, always um, setting the battery on fire because it's overheated. So this is like one of the, the core responsibilities of the system and um, to avoid this um, not too nice uh, situation. And what we are doing is in the end, we are breaking with the system and saying, hey, if you have so many single battery cells within your system, why treating them all the same? So what we do from a hardware perspective is that we have uh, strongly miniaturized electronics that we are connecting to the battery cells, to the single battery cells. And with this, we have the possibility to, in the first place, generate battery data, like in a very, very high quality, not only current and voltage and temperature, but beyond this, um, some more information we can get out from the battery. And on the other side, there is a software component that is using these battery data to on one side evaluate a strongly optimized load and discharge profile because the profiles we can use for the battery cells um, avoids this specific effect that 
the battery cells are aging differently. So they pretty much age all at the same time, which in the end has the effect that the total lifetime within the vehicle is prolonged by 60 to 80%. So let me make sure that I understand this because this is, this is important, especially for battery life extension. Yes. So in a normal one, let's just say we've got a hundred battery cells to make it nice and simple. So let's say two of them are a little bit older or they're not working quite as well as the other ones. And you've got a classic weakest link problem here. So if those two are aging and they're already down to 70% of their capacity, then pretty much the entire battery is now down to 70% of its capacity. Exactly. Exactly. Good. And in your system, so you're looking at all of these individually and managing them all individually. So you've got those two that are not doing so well. So you say, okay, let's give them less work to do. So now they're not going to keep aging. And then the rest of the, the rest of them that are, you know, still at 98% capacity, they just pick up the slack. That's absolutely correct. And taking on your 70%, maybe shortly, the, like the benchmark, especially in the automotive industry is that, um, the lowest level, 75% of left capacity means that the battery pack is used up in the automotive industry. So that's the end of life. If you want to say it like this for the battery pack. Um, okay. I want to talk a little bit about your development process. I want to know some of the stumbling blocks you hit. What are some of the problems that you found when you were trying to develop this thing and how did you get around them? One of the major problems that was not uh, an individual problem of us was for sure the semiconductor shortage, especially during the Corona crisis, which made it kind of hard to iterate fast because sometimes it was the case that when we were designing the hardware and using a component at the one day and continue working on another day, the component we used the day before was no longer available on the market. So that made it kind of hard. And we like, when we had the situation two, three, four times, um, we simply, when we had an idea of which component we wanted to use and it was available, we immediately sourced it. A second point, very important point was that when we talk about the components we need, it is also a question of which components you can use off the shelf. So fitting into your system. And which components can be fit into your system, but are not a perfect match at the moment. And in a prototype stage, that's not a big problem, but you need to, to keep in mind that the components, which are not perfectly made for your, for your system might be specifically developed for your site. Um, but that's also an important point you always keep in mind when you, when you design hardware that is not existing, um, at the specific moment and is very new that, um, there is the possibility that you need components that need to be developed, especially for you. Developing for a prototype and developing for production are two very different things. So you can, Absolutely. you can mix and match a little when you're prototyping, yeah. but when it comes time to production, you need to be very specific about which components are going into your product. An important point when we talk about a final product is also certification and not all the components which are available have the right certification for your use case. So this is another point that comes into the game when, when you talk about production. Now, I feel like we could spend an hour on certification. 
especially here in Germany. <laughs> yes, for sure. It's like a it's like a hobby here in Germany is uh, certifying yeah. things. So let's leave behind the development a little bit and talk a little bit more about the uses of your tech. So one of the really interesting ones, which I find, I really want this to happen, is you can plug in your electric vehicle into the grid and when the grid needs electricity but you don't then you can feed it back into the grid and your batteries are going to make this so much more possible than is the case right now with electric batteries the way they are so tell us a little bit about how you want to bring this into market and how ready is the grid to receive this electricity from the electric vehicle vehicle batteries the grid is ready for this um, because uh, the grid is per se like a two-way system. Um, because if not, it would not be possible to transfer like the energy from the power plant to your home in the end. It is not really a grid um, problem, but it's rather a problem that on one side has technical restrictions at the moment because the, the conventional systems and the conventional electric cars we have on our streets at the moment um, they are not made for such an approach because when you charge them, then electricity is kind of locked up in the car, so you can use it for going from A to B, but there is basically no way to, to get the electricity out again. And our system makes it easier in a way as we, in the end, with our system, you have a software-defined battery. So the software decides for which use case, for which application, you are using your battery. So from a technical perspective, for us, it's easier to implement such a system. Um, and this is why we would like to see this uh, in the future implemented in the cars. And on the other side, what, what makes it hard to implement such an idea is that also regulations come into the game. Who is regulating this new system in the end? Like. Who's taking care of from which car or which cars are used at the specific moment for which um, for which specific provider they are working at the specific moment? So there is lots of regulatory stuff behind this. You you need to to keep in mind to make such a, or to implement such a system in in a large scale. So this this will be a challenge for the future. Mm -hmm. I imagine a very large problem here is building in reliability for all parties involved. So the grid needs a certain amount of reliable energy it can take out of electric vehicles before this becomes a priority. But then on the other side, you as an electric vehicle owner need reliability that you know when you want to go and drive your car, it's going to be ready for you and to do the things and go as far as you want to go. So I imagine, as you said, with the regulatory environment, this is going to take a little while, right? Absolutely. And um, that's why we, in the end, always talk about smart grids. So there must be an intelligence part in such a system that makes sure that the car is available for the owner when he needs it and that there is like also an influence from, in the end, the owner of the car to make sure that the car is only used in a way he's allowing if I had an electric car and I was feeding electricity back into the grid, most of that, 99% of it maybe, can be done with AI, especially yep. if I have a very predictable routine. So I go to work every morning, Monday to Friday, 
Saturdays and Sundays, maybe I might take an hour and a half long trip down to the mountains or to go and do something with the family or meet some friends. And you'd have some sort of software where you can say, I'm about to do something that's outside of my routine. And that's where you go and take control. But for all the rest of the time, the AI can handle that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we know quite some companies who are working exactly on such systems. Um, we have kind of predictive, like user predictions um, of how they are going to use um, their cars to to optimize in the end the, the total energy demand um, for for electricity. It's a very exciting world. Now let's talk a little bit more about some of the other players. In our pre-interview, you mentioned that there are some other people who are working on similar technologies to yours. Some of them are, are fairly big players, though we don't know how many resources they're, they're putting into these projects. Um, my first question is, do you see this as a zero-sum game where the first to market wins? I would say he will win the major share of the market with his technology because in the field we're active, speed is key to success. Not to be underestimated is how much faster startups can be than big players because big players might have a lot of resources, but the startup mindset where you feel like the fire is right behind you and you need to move fast or you'll fail, that's very hard to bring into a large company when all you're offering people is a salary. Exactly. So my hopes lie with you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So let's talk about your next step. So right now you're knee deep in your second generation prototype. Uh, what for you is really important about this prototype and what's gonna be your next stage after that? The next prototype is um, closer to an industrial application. So it needs a, or it works with a different form of batteries and it has more abilities to generate battery data. Another point is that it also, it's also able to handle more power because when we talk about like a laboratory approach, power is not so important. But if you think about the electric cars uh, on the streets, we always talk about a power of maybe on average 100 kilowatts and that you have like a decent um, feeling while driving, let's say. Um, and the labo laboratory prototype was not really on a, on a power level that was, um, that was handling such a feeling, let's say. And uh, this next generation is able to, to handle higher power and uh, work on an average electric car. So this is another point. And what is also super important, especially when we talk about the automotive industry, is, is always cost. So what's the price for your system? And this next generation uh, was strongly focused um, also on increasing the cost of the components we are using and also making it from a volumetric perspective smaller and also lighter because weight is still a major point when you're designing an electric car. So the lighter and the smaller the components you're providing are, the better it is for the system. So exciting times ahead for you guys. Absolutely. Okay, so that's going to take us away from our conversation about your tech and finish up with our game, our win-loser-draw game. Uh, Nicholas, are you ready to play win-loser-draw? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Awesome. So here's our first win-loser-draw for you. Win-loser-draw, 
new sales of gas-powered vehicles becoming illegal EU-wide in the next 10 years? I would say it's a, it's a loss, even if we are very active in the battery electric vehicle market. Um, it's always important to have a decent transition, not only for the economy, but also for the people. Um, and be still open-minded to technologies to, to keep the economy working and making such hard decisions on only one side of the technology, at least in my opinion, this does not necessarily helps the whole system. So that's a very economic answer, but I, I would probably lean in your direction. Next one, win, lose, or draw, a partnership or merger of Bavertis with one of the biggest car makers, we're talking like Ford or Honda or Mercedes. Would be an absolute win because what we can provide is an agile, a smart, and a super motivated team. And what the car manufacturer could provide is the resources and the power in the market to implement and to push a system as we are providing, and in the end, make it more sustainable, more reliable, and more efficient to use electric cars in a big scale. Okay, last one. Win, lose, or draw. EVs becoming cheaper. Um, charging, we're talking purchase, maybe even disposal, will be cheaper than the lifetime of a vehicle if you buy gas-powered. Yes, I would say yes, definitely. Because when we talk about especially how to power them and implement and include the renewables on a small scale so people are able to generate their own electricity that's basically power for free and in the long run when this is on a large scale for everyone available then also mobility and especially the electric cars will become cheaper than the gas powered one because actually i know no one who's generating his own gasoline in his garden for example but I know a lot of people who are generating their own electricity on their rooftop. It's a fair point. Actually, my brother-in-law does that. He has uh, photovoltaics on his roof, yep. an electric vehicle, and he will never pay for petrol again. Yep. Living the dream. Exactly. <laughs> then um, that brings us to the end of Win, Lose, or Draw and to the end of our episode. So, Nicholas... This was very enlightening. I, I picked up a lot from this and thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a lot of fun and hopefully see you next time. So thanks to everyone for listening and watching and that's all from us at Startup Knockout. We'll see you next time. That was our talk with Nicholas Lainout. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can get every video that we make and make sure to come and find us on social media. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next week.